We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, we're in our last week of looking at the letters to the seven churches found in Revelation 2 and 3. Uh, I don't know about you guys, but it's been really, really fruitful for me in my life, really impactful for me personally. But also, I'm very glad that this is the last week of it at the same time. And we're going out with a bang, too. Uh, Remember, we talked about how every letter kind of follows the same format. Christ introduced himself in a specific way to those people. Then he tells them something he's, he sees that they're doing well. Then he tells them something he sees they need to do better at. They're not doing well. Then he gives them a challenge, a call to action. And if they succeed, if they overcome, there's a reward. Uh, but we said that there are a couple, a couple times where there's a deviation from that format, right? Both to the letter to Smyrna and Philadelphia, he has nothing bad to say about them. Nothing against them. They were the two smallest and most suffering churches, and he has nothing bad to say against them, only words of encouragement. The other time that he deviates from that format is this morning, where he has nothing good to say to Laodicea. So we're, we're going to end on a really fun one, right? It's going to be a good time, but it's really fitting, I think, as we're uh, moving toward into what we call Holy Week, the time that marks the last week of Jesus' life on this earth as we are approaching Good Friday and before we get to the celebration that is Easter Sunday. But especially because this morning happens to be what's called Palm Sunday. So Palm Sunday, uh, which I posted a little thing on the app yesterday. If you didn't get a chance, I would encourage you to go back and look at that. Um, But it's just a short three-minute video explanation and reflection on what Palm Sunday is. But if you were to look in Matthew 23, one, I believe it is, uh, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem a week before he goes to the cross. And when he enters into it, he is greeted by a crowd of people who start laying palm branches and coats down so that he won't have to go through the mud and the poo and the filth that was on their roads. And he's riding in on a donkey. And this would have looked very similar to but kind of been a poor man's version of a king riding victoriously into his city after they had just conquered another kingdom in battle. Jesus was riding in as as this victorious rescuing king, but in a very humble way on a donkey, on a colt of a donkey, a baby donkey, instead of a, a valiant steed. This is Jesus's way. The power of God fully present in him the power over all of creation, yet he comes humbly. And the people didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize who he was. And so I think it's important for us to to have that in the back of our heads, which we'll come back to a little bit more later, about what today marks Palm Sunday, what it reminds us of, the, the true king over all the universe who made himself low and small in order to serve us. While we hear these words to a very prideful, very comfortable very arrogant people. And just to have that contrast there in the back of our minds. So turn with me to Revelation 3. And we're going to pick up, starting in verse 14, the letter to Laodicea, and we'll read all the way through the end of the chapter there. Remember, this is Jesus 
giving words to John to write these words down to send to a messenger of the churches there, and then they would, be, they would have been reading these out loud to the whole community. And so Jesus says this to John, verse 14. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea. Thus says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich. I have become wealthy and need nothing. And you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear Listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. Spirit, we have ears. We pray that you would open them, that we would hear your word to us this morning. God, we ask that you would keep anything that is not from you and your word out of my mouth, but that we would only hear what it is you are speaking to your church today. By your power, by your grace, And for your glory, we pray. Amen. All right. It's getting a lot hotter in in Phoenix, isn't it? It's that time of year. Excited to do an outdoor gathering April 24th uh, in Tempe because it's going to be nice and warm. And I've been a Phoenician my whole life. I should be used to this, but I'm just not, right? Uh, We live in the desert. I remember seeing one time on this uh, cartoon called King of the Hill, you guys may be familiar with that, uh, where they had this whole exchange where they were talking about the arrogance of mankind by building a city in Phoenix, the desert. Like, it's just arrogant. Like, oh, here's here's a, a desert oasis. Let's put a city there. In fact, let's make it one of the largest cities in the U.S., right? It just doesn't make sense to me. And yet, I love Phoenix, born and raised here. I don't know if the Lord has other plans, but I'll probably die here. Like, I love it here. Uh, What's ironic about that, you would think, in a desert, as hot as it is here, that we actually have a pretty good water supply, don't we? All all the runoff from the snow that we get up north. uh, We actually are part of, from the Colorado River, too, we, we, we help provide water to California. Now, there's irony, right? They're right next to the largest mass of water, in the world, and they are constantly without water, having a drought. But, you know, there's science behind that, because apparently you don't want to drink salt, ocean water. Um, it does affect the humidity in the air, but it doesn't cause rain to fall. Anyway, science stuff, right? So they don't have good water supply. They're right next to a huge mass of water called the ocean, and constantly California is in a drought. 
The irony of that is kind of what the people of Laodicea were experiencing too. And so they were actually in what's called a, a river valley. So a valley where these rivers were kind of meeting together. But their water supply, it wasn't really flowing there. And so it was stagnant. It, it was stagnant water and it got dirty and nasty. And they were known for not having drinkable water. And the irony in that is they also were known for being the wealthiest, most healthy city out of all seven of these churches. Laodicea had this reputation for being like, this is where, this is the Scottsdale, right? Of Asia Minor. Like, this is where you go if you want a really big house, Fountain Hills, right? Where there's not really many fountains, but lots of hills. This is where you would go if you were like really trying to just show off your wealth and your status. You would live in Laodicea. So it's known for its wealth. It was known for its health. They actually uh, were one of the first places to have a school for medicine. In fact, they found how to grind uh, down this certain type of rock and add ointments to it and turn it into an eye salve. People with what the old documents say, weak eyes, whatever that meant, would rub this eye salve into their eyes and it helped them. And so they, they had a great reputation for these things, wealth, health, and really bad water. So what did they do? They found where there was good water and they built actually an aqueduct system. They had the money, the resources, the finances to do this. I don't know if you guys remember when we were looking at uh, the church in Philadelphia, we talked about how they had actually faced earthquakes and they were completely sent away. They, They had to all evacuate the city. And then the king ended up giving them like a grant sort of to go back and rebuild the city. Well, a similar thing happened to Laodicea where they had to evacuate for an earthquake as well. But they're like, we don't need the king's money. We can go rebuild it ourselves because they were so well off. In fact, they were actually minting their own coins right there in Laodicea. So they're like, we got our own money. We don't need, we don't need your help. Okay? So they went in, they rebuilt, uh, but then they're like, well, we need water. And so they built these aqueduct systems. And there is a city or a town just a little north of them that was called Oropolis that had hot springs. And so they found a way to, to dig these aqueducts and to channel some of that hot spring water down into where they were in Laodicea. And then also in Colossae, if you've read the letter to the Colossians in our Bible, uh, in that city, there was really cold, refreshing water. So they found a way to dig channels to bring that water to them. Well, by the time each of those channels would get there, that water wouldn't be hot spring water anymore. It wouldn't be cold, refreshing water. It would be kind of lukewarm water. This letter right here is actually where two of the most common uh, phrases that we have from these letters in Revelation pop out at us, right? One is when Jesus says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. Is that phrase familiar? The other one, that, that imagery pops out to us. The other one is this idea when Jesus says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, when he says that, the word for that is not just spit, like and a loogie kind of thing. We're going to get really visual here, okay? It is actually the word for projectile vomit. Has anyone ever done that before? <laughs> more, more than I expected. Probably more than what's comfortable for all of us, right? Uh, yeah, this projectile vomit. I have done it before. Not fun, right? 
Nobody wants to do that. And Jesus is saying, I am going to vomit you, hurl you out of my mouth. That's how displeasing this community is to Jesus. And so a lot of times when we would hear that uh, idea of like either hot or cold is good, but lukewarm, not good. And I, I kind of had this understanding long ago that was like Jesus saying, hey, either you're on fire for me or just like be completely against me. I'd almost rather that than you be lukewarm, like kind of mildly saying you're for me, but not really living that way. But that's not really what Jesus is saying. What he's doing is he's setting up imagery to contrast two different things. But he gives two examples for one. He gives two examples of how water in their physical situation, something they would have been able to see and picture and grab a hold of, is useful for them. Getting water from Oropolis or getting water from Colossae would, would have been good and useful for them. But stagnant, dirty, nasty water that's been sitting there collecting all the calcium deposits from their aqueduct system. By the way, it, my house, when we first bought the house we were moving out of right now, it was built in 1969, and they had to go and run a little camera through the sewer line to make sure that the type of sewer lines they used were not something called Orangeburg. Are you guys familiar with Orangeburg? Orangeburg is basically cardboard pipes. It's like really, really compressed cardboard that they would actually lay in the ground and run water through. It's terrible. Like, who had that idea? I don't know. And it would just fall apart like cardboard would getting wet. Uh, and then they did clay. Fortunately, ours was clay. It's a little bit better, uh, and it's lasted this long. But then they started moving into, like, metal pipes, and then eventually the ABS PVC type stuff, right? Which is, you want to go that way. But 1960s, using cardboard to run water. Let's think about how long ago this was in Laodicea. Their aqueduct systems were actually, surprisingly, probably a little more impressive than cardboard. But still, the, the technology, like by the time that water got there, the things it had collected along the way, it was nasty. And their own water supply that had been sitting there stagnant in that valley, just gross. Jesus is contrasting two ideas here. Something that's useful and good and something that you, you don't even want to touch. That's his point. He's not saying, I'd rather be, you be an enemy of me and completely cold against me. That's not his point. I, I would rather you be used for what you were meant for. I would rather you be at work for the thing you were created to do. I would rather you be the image of God that you are supposed to be than this stagnant, useless sitting there doing nothing, church. Those are Jesus' words. It's no less intense, is it? In fact, I think actually, that when I read it that way, it kind of cuts me a little more to the heart. Jesus is saying it, that, that kind of community, bad taste. I'm gonna spit that, I'm gonna vomit that out of my mouth because it's not good for the body. Projectile vomit is trying to get something out that doesn't belong there because it is not good and healthy for the body. But here's the good news. Jesus is writing this letter because there's still time for them to repent and come back to him. 
there's still time for them to recognize their need for him. Jesus says this to them. He goes, you say this in verse 17, I'm rich, I've become wealthy, and I need nothing. That's actually a direct quote from an Old Testament book called Hosea. The prophet Hosea had said this. In Hosea 12, verses 7 through 9, he says this. He's speaking to Jerusalem or Israel as a whole, but specifically using the tribe of Ephraim. Remember, Israel had 12 tribes, uh, and there were two half-tribes, Manasseh and Ephraim. Those were actually, they came from the sons of Joseph, right? Prince of Egypt. Remember that movie? So Ephraim was this tribe in Israel that they became very wealthy. They were, they were very well off. And God was speaking through Hosea to this tribe as an example to all of Israel, much like Jesus is writing these words to Laodicea for something that the whole church needed to read and hear. And this is what God says through Hosea. A merchant loves to extort with dishonest scales in his hands. But Ephraim thinks, how rich I have become. I made it all myself in all my earnings. No one can find any iniquity in me that I can be punished for. I have been the Lord your God ever since the land of Egypt. And I will make you live in tents again as in the festival days. Ephraim saying, hey, we're doing pretty well. We've got all this wealth ourselves. We've done it ourselves. Even they're giving themselves credit for that. And God goes, no, no, no. I'm, I'm your God. I'm in control. I'll make you go back and live in tents again just to show it to you. Like I will, I will projectile spew you out of Jerusalem, out of your city, out of the temple gates, out of your kingdom. And I'll show you who's really in charge so that not, not just so God can punish them and be like, look, who's the big man? but so that they would recognize they're actually in need. Jesus says to Laodicea, you say that, but you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Jesus' plea to them is stop being so comfortable that you don't recognize your need for me. Stop being so prideful that you don't see my power at work in the world. Stop being so self-sufficient that you don't get to experience my love when I show up in your time of need. And I think Jesus is still saying that to the church today. And a lot of people who who preach through this in America, uh, they, they get to this letter and they go, I think Laodicea is America. And I think they have good reason to say that. Because we are very comfortable, aren't we? And I think a lot of times we say things like that. Like, I made myself. I, I made it here. I hustled hard and I climbed to the top, right? Look at what I've accomplished. And you can say, in all of what I've done, you can't find any sin or fault in me. As Ephraim was saying, I actually have people very dear and near to me, people who I love, who have said, yeah, I don't really, I'm not really part of a church community. I don't really give or anything, but I must be doing something right because God keeps blessing me. And I want to go like, I don't, I don't see that anywhere here in scripture. I must be doing something right because God keeps giving me material possessions and wealth and health. 
And actually what we find in these seven letters is the people who are suffering the most were the people Jesus said were closest to him. When Jesus gives his famous sermon on the Mount and he says, blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the hungry and blessed are those who thirst and all these things over and over again, it's the people who recognize their need who actually are blessed. When Jesus says to the rich young ruler, who says, what what do I got to do to follow you? I've followed all the rules. What do I got to do to be in the kingdom? And Jesus says, sell all of your possessions and give them to the poor. Now he doesn't, we have one example of Jesus saying that to somebody, right? It's not a, a prescriptive command for all of us. It's a descriptive account of what he did with one person. And I think it's because Jesus identified that for that man, his identity was wrapped up in his possessions, his wealth, his status, his comfort. And what Jesus was trying to do was to strip that away from him to offer him something better. And the man goes away sad because he, he couldn't leave it. He couldn't leave that stuff. It was clinging to him. He, he knew Jesus offered something better. That's why he goes away sad, but he still goes away from Jesus. So Jesus uses his strong language here to kind of shake us and wake us up and go, spit that stuff out of your mouth, vomit it, projectile, get it out of your body as far away as you can so that it doesn't cling to you any longer and you recognize you are in need of something better. And Jesus is the something better. And Matthew 23 is what I was talking about when uh, Palm Sunday, Jesus is writing in, to Jerusalem. So it's 21 when he rides in. 23, this is taking place just right after he rides in. And he's sitting at the top of a mountain, the top of a hill, and he's overlooking the whole city. And there's just a lot of dialogue and commentary that happens between chapter 21 and 23, but Jesus has just ridden in and he's overlooking the city. And this is what happens here in verse 37. Jesus looking over the city of Jerusalem, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. How often I wanted to gather you into me. The imagery, N.T. Wright says this, that that imagery of a hen gathering her chicks under her wings is kind of like in a barn fire. Uh, There's been people who have reported it. In a barn fire, they would find the mother hen burnt to a crisp, but under her wings, little chicks that were still alive. This imagery is Jesus saying, "I, I want to cover you as my children and take, take the pain, take the suffering, take it all for your sake to protect you, but you were not willing. And when Jesus says to Laodicea, his hard words, we hear his love and his grace. The tone of that like completely changes just this, uh, something from being harsh and angry. It's not that at all. We hear the tone of love when he says this in uh, verse 15. I know your works, you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Just like he says over Jerusalem, how I wish, he says to Laodicea, I wish so much 
that you would see, that you would come and see and come be a part with me, that you would stop letting these other things cling to you. And so in his even introduction to them, he's trying to wake them up and help them to see what's real, help them to see what their need is, help them to see what he is offering to them. Remember, all of his introductions are very specific to them. So he says this in verse 14, this is what the amen says. That sounds kind of weird, right? Like what what does amen mean? Isn't it just this thing we say at the end of our prayer as a magic word to make sure we hit the send button and it gets up to God? All right, Connor, what do you think? What does amen mean? Okay, it's a good thought. And you're kind of on a good track there. Anyone else? Yeah, so be it, let it be. Let it be so is like the the direct translation. Like, let this be true, right? Jesus says, I am the true one. Kind of where we get that, let's say, uh, let's say amen at the end of every prayer. It's actually in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, and it says this. Uh, speaking, Paul's writing about Jesus. He says, for every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say amen to the glory of God. What he's saying is not that every time you pray, you got to say amen, so it will become true. Like you don't get to, we don't get to declare and define that something's going to happen and be true. We don't get to make it so. What he's saying is God's promises that he would care for his creation, that he would restore all of the cosmos and humanity back to what it was supposed to be, not this stagnant, stale, nasty water, but something useful, living and healthy. His promises to restore all the world are yes and amen through Jesus. Jesus is the one who makes it so. He's reminding them, you have not established yourselves with your wealth and your power. I am the one who makes things so. Paul also writes in Colossians 1, in verse 15 of Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and by him, all things hold together. There is no life apart from Jesus. There is no hope apart from Jesus. There is no establishing your identity apart from Jesus like the rich young ruler who was trying to make something of himself and figure out how many boxes he had to check off. Jesus just says, shed all of that, vomit it out and come and follow me. I am the one who holds all things together. This is what he's reminding Laodicea. He is the amen, the faithful, true witness, the originator of God's creation at the end of verse 14. Does anyone have another translation there? It says something else, the what? Maybe it says the ruler of God's creation. So that word there uh, could be translated as both. It could say, it could mean the beginning of or the ruler of. And I think what we just heard Paul writing about Jesus in Colossians is yes, Jesus is both of those things. All things came through him and by him and for him. He is the originator of God's world. 
the word of God spoken forth to cause life to spring up. And he's also the ruler, the king over all of it. When Jesus goes to be with the father, he says to his followers, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You think you've, you've built something for yourselves here, Laodicea? You think you're strong? You think you've established your own identity through your wealth? All things are held together by Jesus. So as he goes on and he's trying to encourage them to get rid of all that, come back, come recognize your need. He gives them these, uh, these three kind of calls to action here. He says this, verse 18, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich. White clothes so that you may be dressed in your shameful nakedness, not be exposed. An ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. He is very specifically speaking to this community with imagery that they would see and recognize in their daily lives. Uh, Buying gold from Jesus, refining the fire so that you could be rich when they're wealthy, rich people. He's, he's contrasting saying, your wealth means nothing. Come and be rich in me, right? And then the eye salve thing we talked about already. Like they were known for creating this ointment to help the eyes. And Jesus says, no, you're actually still blind. You're still blind. Come to me and I will help you really see. The white clothes, they were another thing that Laodicea was known for is they actually had black sheep, black sheep in their in their part of the world. And so this wool that would come from those sheep, they would create black garments. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, but black can be very slimming, look very formal, very nice, right? And so they prided themselves on going around in these all black garments. And Jesus says, hey, I want to make you a contrast community. You want to really stand out. Where would I give you? Not, not the thing that shows off to your friends and your family how wealthy you are, but actually shows really how needy you are, how wretched and poor and pitiful you are. But come and be clothed in my righteousness. Come and be clothed in something pure and spotless and holy and truly set apart. You're trying to set yourselves apart with your wealth and your prosperity and your success and your position and status in life. And Jesus's invitation is come, come and get these things from me. It's not like Jesus has his own little store, his Etsy shop, and he's like, come buy this stuff, right? Uh, Because actually elsewhere in scripture, we're told, come and buy without money. God says this to his people, come and buy without any money. Just come and receive from me. Come and receive, it will be given to you. And I think that's why he ends with that, that famous imagery that we have in our heads too. Of, he says, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking. They don't even have to go very far to come to him. Jesus is coming to them. I'm standing at your door knocking. All you got to do is open it up. All you got to do is say yes to the amen. Just open up and let me come in. I want to come and be with you and sit down and eat with you. And anyone who answers that door, Jesus promises, I will sit with them, they will sit with me. And not only that, but he says, you will sit on my throne in heaven. 
Meaning you, you get invited into the feast, like the great banquet feast of eternity in the throne room of God's kingdom. And you get to join with him as the originator and ruler over all creation. You get to join with him in sharing his authority of having dominion and care over his good world. Becoming useful water again, a refreshing drink to the creation we're called to care for, to our neighbors around us we're called to love. A hot spring that can be used for for cleaning and cooking, like something useful, not stagnant, dirty water. Jesus's harsh words are met with gracious invitation. Say, please, I wish you would come. Matter of fact, I've already come to you. Just open the door. I think for many of us here, maybe we have people in our heads that we're thinking, I wish they, I wish they could hear this. I wish they would read this. I wish they could just open the door to Jesus, right? And we, we want to take some time and, and just pray for them. We want to take some time to uh, make ourselves available to them, to make Jesus known to them. But I also wonder how many of us sitting in this room have been occupying our thought right now with other people who need to hear this. And maybe we need to see, you don't even see how wretched and poor and pitiful and blind you are because you have, you have seen your success in doing the right things like the rich and ruler. You have looked to your position and how you have created a name for yourself as someone who follows Jesus through your efforts, through your works. And the invitation is Jesus is knocking at your door right now. It's a good thing to recognize how needy you are, how needy we are, because we are. And when we recognize that need, we open the door and the very one, the only one who can meet that need is standing right there and he's waiting. Would you pray with me?